Hello, my name is Catherine O'Leary, and on behalf of the Scottish Arts and Humanities Alliance, I would like to welcome you to our podcast, Historical Insights on the Invasion of Ukraine. Our speakers, drawn from across the Scottish higher education sector, are authorities on the history and culture of the region. They are Dr. Murray Frame, historian of modern Russia from the University of Dundee, Professor Robert Frost, Burnett Fletcher Chair of History at the University of Aberdeen and an expert on the history of Eastern Europe. Professor Tony Haywood, Chair of History at the University of Aberdeen, whose research focuses on Russian and Soviet history. Dr Thomas Marsden, Lecturer in European History with a particular focus on Russia at the University of Stirling. The moderator for the discussion is Dr John Blackwood, Reader in Art and Politics at Robert Gordon University. In this discussion, grounded in an arts and humanities perspective and independent historical inquiry, the speakers explore contested narratives of the past and what these mean for our understanding of the current conflict. They consider the importance of narratives of national identity, when these emerge, how they are communicated and why they are contested. They examine what commemorative practices tell us about the present and why religious, economic and political legacies still matter if we are to reach greater insight into this complex region and into the ongoing invasion of Ukraine. We hope that you find it useful. So good morning everyone and welcome to our discussion. The first topic we have to consider regards the Kremlin statement made to justify the so-called special military operation in Ukraine, presented on the 21st of February, and it does present a certain interpretation of history. So could we reflect on the strategic use of history and its current extreme weaponization? Murray, I wonder if you'd like to say something about that. Thanks, John. Well, I mean, obviously, there are many layers to understanding the background to the invasion. One of them is a particular narrative of Russian and Ukrainian history, which I think is fundamental to understanding the war, because it really underpins why the Kremlin views Ukraine as an integral part of Russia's own heritage, and why it should therefore be part of Russia's sphere of influence. And that narrative is essentially that the two countries are fundamentally the same, sharing common roots in ancient Rus or Kievan Rus, which was the first Slavic polity in Eastern Europe from about 800 to 1240. And this theme, as you've mentioned, appeared in a very distorted version in the paper entitled On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians, which appeared on the Kremlin website last July. And this was really preparing the ideological ground, if you like, for the invasion by trying to use history to deny Ukraine's right to exist as a separate state. And therefore, I think it's a blatant example of both history as propaganda and, as you mentioned, a weaponization of the past for political purposes. It's an attempt to impose a particular view on the past as a justification for the actions of the present. But I think the point I would emphasize is that that narrative is by no means an uncontested or uncontroversial picture of Ukrainian and Russian history or Russian history to invoke the the earlier term for the East Slavic lands. And one can point to two 
obvious examples of contestation around that narrative. One is that the political unity and cultural homogeneity of Kievan Rus is very much a matter of historiographical dispute and debate amongst historians. Many would, would argue that it was really much more fragmented than some modern Russian historians have argued, and, and there are lots of reasons uh, for that. And another example relates to the famous, in this context, Treaty of Pereyaslav, 1654, which bound left-bank Ukraine to Muscovy. And that has always been presented, or usually been presented by Russians and Russian historians as a kind of an act of fealty to the Tsar, and a process of reunifying two of the main parts of ancient Rus. But Ukrainian historians, on the other hand, see that uh, treaty much more as an alliance, which was never meant to lead to what they see as the effective colonization of left-bank Ukraine by Russia. So that, that narrative, which underpins the kind of ideological justification for the war, if you like, in, in historical terms and in the historical context, I think is a highly contested one. Mm. Thank you very much. Robert Frost. Yes, I, I would take that up. The thing that struck me most about Putin's statement was this one in which he said Lenin created modern Ukraine without asking the millions of people who lived there, as if Putin asks millions of people to agree to anything other than what Putin thinks. But I, I would take up what Murray said and say that the thing about these lands that we're talking about is that from the very outset, they've been multi-ethnic multinational, multi-religious, with all sorts of peoples living on them. And the problem we face is the attempt in the 19th century to construct narratives based on the idea that the state and the nation should be coterminous. And this caused tendentious interpretations of the past to come out from Russian historians, but also from historians of Ukraine writing against that idea the greatest of which was Mikhailo Khrushchevsky in the end of the 19th century, who wrote his history of Ukraine Rus, because he was bothered by the Hegelian claim that there were nations and there were historic nations, and historic nations had a tradition of statehood. And Khrushchevsky reads Hegel and is worried by him because he has to locate a tradition of statehood that means that Ukrainians are a proper nation, which he locates in Kievan Rus and writes a very powerful critique, tendentious in its own way, of the Russian interpretation of the links between Kievan Rus and modern Ru Russia. And the aspect that gets left out of much of the Anglophone story, at least in the textbooks, not in the works of professional historians these days, is the fact that Ukrainians had to define themselves against two others, the great Russians, and the Poles, and they were on that borderline of European culture between Western Latin culture and Eastern Orthodox culture. And that is the complexity of Ukrainian identity to this day. They spent as much, if not more time, living under Polish and Lithuanian rule as part of a deeply uncentralized political system that in the Renaissance period became overtly Republican although it had a king. And so therefore they drew in Western culture, but were also part of Eastern culture. And that battle in the 19th century, when both Poles and Russians 
said that Ukrainians weren't a proper nation, that Ukrainian wasn't a proper language, has done much to form modern Ukraine. Very, very interesting. Tony, I wonder if you'd like to come in there. Yeah, I've got a couple of points I'd like to add. The first one is this use of history in this particular crisis, not an isolated instance during Putin's tenure in, in Russia. I remember being told a, a story about five, six years ago when um, I was uh, researching in Russia about a colleague who had written an article about crime in blockaded Leningrad in World War II and hadn't been able to publish it because basically the response was it defames the Soviet state. And that colleague was employed in a state institution, therefore taking money from, in effect, the state budget as their salary. The logic was, if the state pays you, then you cannot defame the state. That's World War II. This is a, a different instance, but the pattern is, I think, exactly the same. This, this is control of, of history. And I think that if we step back a little bit to a, a broader point, it really stresses the importance of independent historical inquiry. If, if, if you're going to understand your history as a country, as a people, you have to have historians who are not, being, who are not beholden to the state in that way, it seems to me. The other point I'd like to bring in is a term that was very common 20, 30 years ago in the, in the aftermath of the, the breakup of the USSR, but it seems to have gotten lost lately. I think it's quite helpful in understanding how areas around the Russian Federation have been seen. And that is the near abroad. It was a concept that, that the Russian, I suppose it was the Yeltsin governments played with in the 1990s to try and express a connection with the Russians that is to say, ethnic Russians who lived outside the borders of the Russian Federation in places like Ukraine, the Baltic states, Belarus, and so forth. There was a, a strong sense of, of a need somehow to protect these people in that decade and a complete inability of the state to do so. Now, the term is, I haven't seen the term used for a, for a long time now. Perhaps I just haven't been looking in the right places. But anyway, it's something I think that's helpful to, to bear in mind when trying to get to grips with what Russians think about these areas. Thank you very much. Thomas. Uh, yeah, thank you, John. I just, I want to follow on from Tony really in thinking about this in the wider context of Putin's falsification and uh, weaponization of history. And I think there's a few different things going on here. I mean, we can see the complete distortion and the, uh, the blatant lies in relation to the most recent history. And in a way, this is the most important when thinking about the Ukraine crisis. It's the idea that genocide is taking place in the Donbass and the recent Nazification of Ukrainian government. In a way, these, this is the most important distortion because that's what justifies the conflict to the Russian population. But alongside that, we have a long-term trend in Putin's government, kind of what Tony was talking about there, the attempt to eradicate negative parts of the Soviet past in particular, and moments when the, the Russian state or the Soviet state has attempted to sort of repress democracy and repress freedom. So we see that Yes, certainly, as Tony was talking about, in relation to historians as employers of the, as employees of the state, but also with the recent repression of independent historical organizations such as such as Memorial, who have played a, a massively important role in trying to commemorate uh, Stalin's repression. Then I think there's the sort of historical distortions and and strategic use of history in relation to a sort of uh, imagined past. One of these that stands out is the attempt to deny Ukrainian statehood, which is, again, it's, it's a blatant mistruth and has no 
basis in history. The idea that Lenin created Ukraine as a state is a nonsense. The first Ukrainian, under that name, the first Ukrainian state to emerge was in 1917, following the, the Bolshevik uh, revolution. So we can dismiss that. The final point, which is a way I think is, it is again about the weaponization and, and use of history, but it's about Putin's sincere beliefs, I think. And that is Putin's embrace of a kind of all Russian nationalism. And of course, all nationalisms are distortions of the past by definition. They try to find these ancient stories of nations that go back to antiquity. And in a way, I think that's, that's kind of the most interesting story here is that Putin is returning to this all Russian nationalism, which isn't a new invention. It's something that belongs in the 19th century. I've got actually one of the things looking at the, so both his, the statement you sent us, but also that July 2021, uh, his, his famous uh, sort of article. Putin thinks of himself very much as a historian. He takes history seriously. He, he is Putin, the great historian, as well as being, you know, the, the, the great tutor of tigers and everything else he does. But there's a quote I wanted to read to you from Katkov, one of the most important publicists of the 1860s. In 1863, he wrote, Ukraine has never had a distinctive history, has never been a separate state. The Ukrainian people is a purely Russian people, an essential part of the Russian people, without which the Russian people cannot go on being what it is. Um, so I just wanted to read that to show that this sort of all Russian nationalism that Putin subscribes to isn't a new invention. It's something that was part of the sort of emerging Russian nationalism of the 19th century. Thank you very much, Thomas. It's been a really interesting series of comments. I lived in Estonia for a while, 15, 16 years ago, and I can remember the visceral fear in Tallinn when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008. That was a very strange week in Tallinn. And it reminded me that I was called to mind by Tony's comments on Russia's attitude to ethnic Russians, for want of a better term, beyond the borders of the current Russian Federation. And Thomas's comments follow on that from that really well. But I suppose we need to move on a little bit onto the question of Kiev and Rus that a couple of you mentioned in your introductory remarks, and what more we should say about the legacy of Kiev and Rus as it plays a part in the narrative presented by Putin to support his current military actions. I can uh, come in. So yeah, I, I think, again, it comes back to thinking about the emergence of Russian nationalism, I suppose, and that attempt to create a sort of a narrative that goes back to antiquity. So if we look at when those first narratives begin to emerge, we can return to the early 19th century and the famous Russian historian Nikolai Karamzin. And his history of the Russian state, which is published, I can't quite remember, I think it's around 1812. Someone might want to correct me on that. It begins with Kievan Rus. So it traces the history of Russian statehood back to Kievan Rus. And this is the narrative that really sort of took off from the 19th century uh, among the first sort of Russian national thinkers. I think the other really important thing to note here in terms of a Russian national narrative is the centrality of orthodoxy to that sense of Russian nation. So if we look at the earliest Russian nationalists, very often they're associated with the Slavophiles, this intellectual movement uh, that, that grew, up, grew up in the 1830s among the Moscovite nobility. They saw the key to Russian nationhood as being orthodox unity. And so, if they're thinking about orthodoxy as being the key to Russian nationhood, of course, they can't ignore Kiev because this is where the Eastern Slavs first converted to the orthodox faith. So I think from the very early days of, of thinking about this, is there such a thing as a Russian nation? It is very much associated with orthodoxy and with that Kievan le legacy, both the history of statehood and the history of the faith. 
I think the second thing to point out about the importance of that legacy is the way that, that that then comes into conflict with an emerging Ukrainian nationalism. Robert mentioned Khrushchevsky, but even before that, Ukrainians have begun to put forward an alternative narrative, which traces the origins of the separate Ukrainian nation uh, back to Kievan Rus. Thank you very much, Thomas. Robert? Yes, and I think what the Russian narrative that Putin has taken up stresses is continuity. Whereas the whole history from Kievan Rus is marked by discontinuities and the lack of unity within that orthodox tradition. And that is particularly clear if you look at the discontinuity of the Mongol invasions, which destroys Kievan Rus, but which only brings part of what had been Kievan Rus under Mongol overlordship for two centuries. And the rest is swept up by Poland-Lithuania. And well, first by Lithuania, and then becomes part of this Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, where it is part of it, Kiev is part of it for well over three centuries, a very long time. And within that, there is this fight for religious control between metropolitans of Kiev who go to Muscovy and accept the Muscovite link but attempts to establish a separate metropolitan metropolitanate in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and the elevation of a patriarchate of Moscow, of Moscow in 1589, which claims to rule all the Orthodox Church, but which does not. It's seven years before the creation of the Greek Orthodox Church, the Uniate Church, the Union of Brest in 1596, which is an attempt to create a place for the Orthodox within this Republican Polish-Lithuanian system, which has played an important role in the creation of modern Ukrainian nationalism, at least in Western Ukraine. And Ukraine is a religiously divided state today with an Orthodox church that, that is loyal to the Moscow Patriarchate, a Ukrainian Orthodox church with an Ukrainian Patriarchate, plus an autocephalous church and the Uniate church. So the unity of Orthodoxy has been a myth throughout. It's discontinuity, not continuity, which marks Ukrainian history and Russian history. Yes, indeed. Very much so. Tony? Yes, I think there's a, it's not entirely unproblematic for Putin either. Two points to make. One is that in pretty much central Kiev, there's a monastery complex that plays an important role in Orthodox history. What happens if his tanks destroy that monastery complex in the course of the, the fighting? Um, how does that play with the Orthodox faithful at home in, in Russia? So it's a, a very important site in, in that history. And the second thing is the Moscow Patriarch at the moment. He's come under considerable pressure from both the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Pope in recent days to come out and oppose the war, but he hasn't done that. But one's reading reports about priests around Russia who are condemning the war. This is obviously going to be, it seems to me, obviously going to be a problem going forward for the Orthodox Church within Russia. Thank you very much. Well, shall we move on to the next question? This religious dimension is clearly fundamental to the problems that we're currently facing in the conflict. But of course, there's also the economic dimension. And much of the media coverage is focused on the impact of Western sanctions on the Russian economy. But taking the longer view, I wonder, Murray, if I could ask you if there were moments in Russian history 
where economic consideration and scarcity have led to regime change and what we can learn from such moments in history? Well, I, th I think what we can point to is the fact that in Russian history, there, there is a very strong or there has been a strong association between war and revolution or regime change. So one can point to, for example, the 1904-05 Russo-Japanese War, the, the, the impact of which drove the 1905 revolution, which led to some constitutional change in 1905. And then, of course, there's the, the story which Tony might want to speak to as well about the, the impact of the First World War in um, bringing about the, the Russian Revolution. You know, that there was a significant economic crisis at that time, rampant inflation. There was also um, a significant refugee crisis in the Russian Empire's western borderlands at the time. And that played no small part in bringing about the turmoil of the, the 1917 uh, revolution. And one could also point to the impact of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the extent to which that helped to undermine the uh, Soviet Union in the 1980s, early 1990s. So I think in terms of the lesson that we can derive from those historical examples, I would say that, that you know, there is a strong link between the significant economic and social side effects of foreign conflict, but also that it, it's, it's quite difficult to predict exactly how and when war leads to regime change in Russia. By no means inevitable, but I think it is a distinct possibility. Mm. Thank you very much, Murray. Robert, over to you. Yes, if I may take a, might take a longer historical perspective, there's one major example from the 16th century, which is what followed the reign of Ivan the Terrible. And it's linked into another aspect of this historical distortion of Putin, one that's had quite a career in the West, the idea that Russia is vulnerable, Russian history is characterized by major invasions by foreign powers. And they mention the Polish occupation of the Kremlin in 1612, 1812, and 1941. But they never mention the fact that all of these invasions of Russia were the result of attacks by Russia on its neighbor. Russia has been a major imperial aggressive power. It attacked the Lithuanians from 1494, five major wars down to 1533, all launched by Russian attacks except one, which was a Polish-Lithuanian attempt to get back territory that it had lost. Then Ivan the Terrible launches in 1558 the Northern Wars by invading what's now the Baltic states, Livonia, Estonia, and Lithuania. But he comes up against armies that are better, and it almost destroys the Russian military system and creates a major economic, political, and social crisis in Russia, the time of troubles. Now, the Poles and Lithuanians offer an alter their alternative model to the Russian elites. But here you have a clash of political cultures. When Poles talk about, don't you want liberty and freedom? They say, no, we prefer the fierce rule of the Tsar. But Ivan almost destroys that. And so that was very much a regime change. They actually elect the son of the King of Poland as Tsar, some groups of boyars, but then order is restored. So Russia's aggression has often brought a counter-aggression from outside, but they are by no means innocent in this.
Yes, thank you. Thomas, over to you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I wanted to pick up on a couple of things that kind of Robert and, and Murray um, have already discussed. Really. The first is about the economic question and Murray's point that it's it's very hard to predict uh, if that could lead to regime change. And I think it's important to remember that Russia has been through economic hardship and periods of economic crisis in the very recent past. And in a way, I mean, sanctions are absolutely necessary. I don't have any doubt about that. But in a way, they are a bit of a double-edged sword in the sense that it does feed into a Russian narrative that we are used to these deprivations. And this is something that we are very familiar with. So I'm, I'm not convinced we're at the stage yet where economic hardships would lead to regime change. I think, in a way, the more serious problem is the question of, of warfare and, and military defeat and military humiliation, which, of course, has very often led to led to regime change in, in the Russian context. And I think Putin is he's playing a dangerous game, really, in, in courting this far-right Russian nationalism, which is not at all in sympathy with the vast majority of Russians, I don't think. It makes me think very much of this, of Jeffrey Hosking's very influential argument about Russian history, which is that the Russian nation was always sacrificed to the empire. And I think, once again, we see something very similar happening in that Russian people are being sacrificed to this very anachronistic idea of an old Russian empire that has to be rebuilt. And this anachronistic culture of, of imperialism is being opposed to a, a kind of modern Ukrainian culture of civic nationalism, of liber liberalism and democratic freedom. So I think Putin is playing a very dangerous game there because he's assuming that there is support for this very anachronistic imperial ethnic nationalist program when I don't think there is. So I think in a way that is perhaps the, the bigger problem he faces than the economic faction. Thank you very much. That's some very interesting thoughts there. Tony, over to you. I'm usually uneasy about the notion of lessons from history, but I think there are some insights that we can get from the relatively recent past here. Um, if we go to 1917 in, in the middle of the First World War, um, we need to remember there are two regime changes in that year in Russia first in the February Revolution, second in the October Revolution. If we look at February, I think the interesting thing there is there is no obvious opposition leader that leads, a, as it were, the charge against the Tsarist regime. What I think is crucial at that point is that the regime finds itself unable to use force to put down, to stop the demonstrations that were occurring on the streets of the capital. The order to, for troops to fire on the demonstrators is given. Basically, the troops ignore that, that order. So the regime loses its ability to use force to control. That, I think, is, is the crucial point there. The follow-on from that with the new regime is that the, the, the elite in the, in the shape of the provisional government and the allies, both of them largely ignore what the populace as a whole seems to be saying in the aftermath of the revolution, which is, we want peace. We want an end to this carnage. The Allies insist on Russia maintaining or carrying out its obligations to support Allied war aims. And the provisional government is looking to uh, solidify relations with the Allies and, and insist that, yes, we will do that. The net result is that the people feel ignored. And that deepens the political crisis as well. There's a role for foreign governments here uh, in relation to what the Russian public at large is saying how one finds out what popular opinion actually is of course another matter entirely but but in 1917 i think that was pretty clear if we move to the bolshevik revolution 
more complex and I think with further things to think about. First is the, the foreign response. Bolshevism was described with words like disease and the response was described, um, it's essentially the response uh, was sanctions and so-called quarantine, quarantine a disease. Kind of odd echo of the COVID situation, I suppose, isn't there? Quarantine Bolshevism, try and snuff it out by not letting anybody come into contact with it, really. In those circumstances, two things I think were really important. One was the fanatical determination of, of the new leaders to hold on to power and to use force to do that. And they were they were able as well as willing to use force. Hence, we get into things like the Red Terror. And that, of course, also opens up the scope for civil war. Those leaders, in fact, leaders on both sides, both main sides, gosh, we, let's not get into the complexities of the, the civil war, but essentially they were fighting uh, an existential war. It was life, it really was life or death. I think there is a, a sense in which Putin has taken himself into that kind of corner. So his political life, at any rate, is, is on the line at the moment. And suppose he does lose power, what happens to him then? What is he going to be thinking about what happens to him in that kind of scenario? I don't imagine he'd be at all happy about it. So the scope for civil war. And the third, third point that follows on from that is with, with the foreign military intervention that occurred during 1918 to 1920 or so, is wh what do you do if the sanctions don't appear to be achieving your objective and nor does the military intervention? The exit strategy, such as there was over the course of 1919-1920, for Lloyd George, who was, a, a, I think, a key mover in this, was basically to develop the idea of killing Bolshevism with kindness. You start trade with, quote-unquote, the Russian people, not the regime. Uh, and that's a terribly difficult distinction to make, which the Bolsheviks easily undercut. But uh, you start trade in the hope that prosperity will make people think that Bolshevism's not a good idea. What it doesn't take into account of is the way that the Bolsheviks were able to use Russian nationalism to uh, mobilize people against the foreign intervention. And generally, the, the create a sense of a siege mentality where the, the country is under, well, under, under siege, under threat, and that these foreigners are seeking to snuff Russia out. And it's that kind of rhetoric that I think you're seeing from the Russian government over the last few days. Um, seems to me there is a direct echo of that situation of the sort of end of the teens, early 1920s. The one other thing I bring into this discussion that hasn't, I think, been mentioned so far is 1991. Sure, there wasn't a, a war with guns being fired uh, going on at that time, but there was the Cold War. And of course, you have the argument in, in the States particularly that, that Reagan and, and such other presidents helped to bring the Soviet Union down through their, you know, the pressures that they put onto the Russian economy, particularly during the Cold War. In other words, the West won the Cold War and the implosion of the Soviet regime was, the, was, a, was a consequence of that. If we look at what happened in, in 1991, in August specific 1991, when there was that attempted coup, you'll remember that that's what in most Western minds brought Yeltsin to the fore. He became a rallying figure, something that there wasn't in February 1917 but there was, for, for Muscovites particularly, in 1991. And they came out onto the streets then, even though tanks were on the streets. Where's the rallying figure now? Um, the obvious person, I suppose, one would point to is Navalny, but he's safely tucked up in prison, as far as Putin is concerned. So what kind of, kind of change needs to happen within Russia for people to come out onto the streets, even though there's a possibility of, of tanks being there? Mm. Well, yes, we're in uncharted territory there, Robert. 
Yeah, just to pick up on what Thomas and Tony have said, I'm sure that Thomas is right, that there are many, many Russians, especially among the young urban Russians, educated Russians, who reject this Putinesque interpretation of history. But I wonder if I could ask my Russianist colleague how far that Putinesque interpretation is still held to and strikes a chord. The idea of the vulnerable Russia, the idea of the Russia always under attack from the West, the idea of NATO as an aggressor, because I think among older Russians, I get the impression, and among rural Russians, it strikes a much greater chord. I mean, we've had reports of Ukrainians texting their Russian relatives, family, saying, look what's going on. How can you support this? And they say, oh, you're all making it up. You're bombing your own factories and repeating the Putinesque propaganda, which is deeply worrying. So I don't know what my Russian colleagues would say about the balance of those interpretations in Russian society today. Yes. Thomas, you want to come in there? Yes. I mean, I uh, haven't been to Russia, obviously, in, in the past few, a few weeks. So it's, it's a very hard question to answer. I think I think Robert's right that the propaganda machine is very effective. And this is why I said at the beginning, really, the important distortions relate less to these this use of the narrative of Ukraine's lack of statehood and more to question of genocide in the Donbass and the Nazification of the Ukrainian regime. And my impression is that these are the distortions that are persuading the Russian public that this war is necessary. In terms of the appeal of a sort of all-Russian nationalism about rebuilding the Russian empire, I'm not convinced that that does have mass support. I'm not convinced that many people in Russia would be behind the idea of claiming Ukraine as part of a historic national territory without the use of these lies about the need to go in there to protect ethnic Russians. I mean, of course, that call to sort of ethnic brotherhood is a very strong one. And I think that's something that that would resonate with Russians. But I don't think they equate that to saying, well, Ukraine has to be part of a greater Russian nation. Thank you very much. We need to move on to our next area. And there's a joke going round on Twitter at the moment, of one Muscovite resident saying to another, what metro station are you? Kievskaya. And you? Belaruskaya. We'll meet you at Barakadskaya then. So I, I want to move on to Belarus because, of course, it's often overlooked in these recent discussions uh, during the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. But, of course, Belarusian territory is being used to launch attacks on Ukraine. And I wondered what your thoughts were on the impact of the invasion of Ukraine on the dictatorship of Alexander Lukashenko, particularly after the constitutional vote of the 27th of February, which removed Belarus's neutrality and permitted for the storage of nuclear weapons again on Belarusian territory. Perhaps, Murray, you'd like to come in on that one? Well, I think it's clear that after the the 2020 vote and, and the anti-Lukashenko demonstrations, Minsk has moved much closer to Moscow and and has demonstrated the extent to which it relies on Moscow. And Russia clearly sees Belarus as a client state and much in the way that it seems to want to turn Ukraine into a client state. So I think it's it's kind of a double-edged sword for Belarus, it seems to me, that if 
you know, the, the narrative about Russia and Ukraine being part of the same common Russian homeland equally applies to Belarus, of course, so that squarely puts all three of those countries, at least in, in the eyes of the Kremlin, in the same package, if, if one could put it that way. The political benefit for Lukashenko, of course, is that that does tie Minsk closely to Moscow and gives him that kind of client protection from or patronage of, of, of Moscow, gives him uh, that political protection in, in the face of what is clearly uh, a huge groundswell of opposition to, to that dictatorial uh, regime. Thank you very much. Perhaps, Robert, you might give us a little bit of further perspective from the Polish-Lithuanian context, which, of course, Belarusian territory was a very important part of. Yeah. Well, I think Belarus is interesting and the opposition is interesting, partly because Belarusians lack the same sort of tradition of statehood and claims of statehood that the Ukrainians could muster, not just from Kiev and Rus, but also from the Cossack hetmanate of the 17th and 18th centuries. And the interesting thing for me in the Belarusian demonstrations was the use of the symbol of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, that rider on the horse, which is their claim to statehood, which dates back to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which has involved Belarusians in an interesting conversation with Lithuanians about whether it was a Lithuanian or a Russian state. Language, official language, legal language was Ruski, was Ruthenian, not Lithuanian, which was not a written language till the 16th century. And quite how to judge that, I don't know, because Lukashenko has taken control of the institutions of Belarus. It was a brief period in the early 1990s when historians at the Academy of Sciences, the Institute of History, the Academy of Sciences, produced a new history of Belarus, which was instantly condemned by Lukashenko when he came to power. And it was uh, pulped. And uh, I think I'm right in saying that he then appointed his high, Soviet high school history teacher to direct the institute, but I may be wrong on that. But there are many Belarusian historians in exile in Poland who are writing against this vision of history. And the historians of Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, and Poland have come together since 1991 in very interesting ways. Quite how this plays out in wider Belarusian society, I just am not an expert, so I don't know. I think the Belarusian issue is, is incredibly interesting. The military strategic reality now is that there are a lot of Russian troops in Belarus, and should there be any large protests there, in effect, there's a, a potential occupation force already in, in place. That's the first thing. Second thing is Kaliningrad. The former German city of Königsberg is, is the main city in an area of Russian territory known since 1945 as, as Kaliningrad that is geographically isolated from the Russian Federation, but still politically part of it. So there's the question of access for Russia to Kaliningrad. One of the things that the ban on Russian aviation going through EU airspace means is that planes flying from, say, Moscow to Kaliningrad now have to go up to the Gulf of Finland, along the Gulf of Finland, and down the Baltic Sea to get to Kaliningrad. Huge detour. That has got to worry the uh, Russian military, apart from anything else, let alone what the politicians think about it. On land, the access is uh, essentially by rail through Belarus and through Lithuania, which, of course, the latter is an EU and NATO member. So it seems to me that the strategic question of Kaliningrad now is it hasn't been, I think, really brought to the fore. 
but it is going to be a really sore point in the coming months, I, I suspect. Indeed. Thank you very much indeed, Tony. I want to move on, colleagues, if we may, and consider a very broad question for the last question, which is this. What influence do you think the current situation in Ukraine will have in our understanding of history in the future, and indeed more broadly, what we can learn from this situation about the role of the arts and humanities in understanding it? Perhaps, Thomas, I can come to you on that one first. Well, it's a very difficult question always to, to sort of predict the impact of events like this. I suppose one thing you'd hope it would do is to to show the importance of history, to show how its abuse can have such a have such a big impact on contemporary affairs and contemporary politics. I suppose one other thing it should bring attention to is the importance of historical parallels. I think making historical parallels is always a very dangerous thing to do. We, you know, it's a very dangerous game to ta- start talking about history repeating itself. But there have been a lot of signals over the past 20 years about where the Putin regime is going. And I think we have made, in terms of European powers, made a lot of mistakes in how we have dealt with with Putin. And I think looking at history could have helped us potentially to have avoided making those mistakes, both in terms of thinking about the extent to which Russia was humiliated post-Soviet Union and the attempts to keep it isolated or not sort of rehabilitated or bring it back in uh, to the fold, I suppose, also the way in which Putin's annexation of Crimea and his first legal invasion of Ukraine and the Donbass has been sort of, not, not ignored of course, but easily forgotten about, easily dismissed. Great, thank you. Murray, could we hear from you in this? Yeah, so I think you know, in terms of the impact of the invasion on our understanding of history and the writing of history, it very much depends on how this all ends. One thing we do know is that the, our understanding of the past and the writing of history is very much shaped by contemporary events and contemporary preoccupations. So I think there will inevitably be an impact uh, on, on our historical understanding. So to posit a couple of possible ways in, in which emphases might shift, I mean, first of all, I think it's possible that the war will prompt historians of Russia to rethink some of the fundamental narratives of Russian history, and most notably the, the commonly found narrative, which was first made quite widespread by Kluchevsky and Pogodin and others in the 19th century, but is commonly found in Western uh, studies of Russia as well, which is the idea that, that Russia, the course of Russian history has been about gathering in the Russian lands which were sundered by the Mongols in, in the 13th century and so on. And, and we, we spoke earlier on about the, that historical narrative and, and, and how it underpins much of the Kremlin's understanding of the historical relationship between Russia and, and Ukraine and so on. But I think what the invasion has exposed is the extent to which those historical narratives have, you know, going back to the 19th century and onwards, served fundamentally imperialist interests. And so a consequence of that realisation, if you like, is that Russian historians or historians of Russia might become more inclined to view the theme of the gathering in of the Russian lands as a kind of ideology and apologia for imperialism and Muscovite colonisation, rather than as the inevitable and beneficent reunification 
um, of the Rus and so on. Secondly, I think um, a lot of historians of Russia, although by no means all, have regarded Ukraine historically as a closely related appendage of Muscovy and Tsarist Russia, albeit one that later on became an independent sovereign nation state. But I think they're now much more likely to give more emphasis to Ukraine's historical distinctiveness than, than perhaps they have done in the past. I'm talking about historians of Russia rather than historians of Ukraine per se. And, and finally, I, I would say that it's possible that the invasion will reinforce a view of Russia as having a political culture that is fundamentally authoritarian and expansionist in contrast to a country which in the past has had autocratic and authoritarian governments, but since 1991 and the collapse of the Soviet Union has been dealing with an imperfect and as yet incomplete post-communist transition to democracy. I think that kind of narrative of Russian history will be turned on its head by the invasion. And then very finally, in terms of what this tells us about the role of history in general, I think I think the invasion is very much a reminder that what people think happened in the past can be as important as what actually happened in the past. And as I think Tony uh, alluded to earlier on, I think it's essential that that historians are here to uh, critique the public interpretations of the past, the public history, if you like, and to challenge the false assumptions through historical research. So it absolutely underlines the fundamental importance of, of history. Mm, thank you very much. And your comments put in mind the words of the Moldovan author, Julian Chechen, who said, post-Soviet transformation is just an ongoing thing in Moldova. It's never ended. But I think the post-Soviet era has come to an end from the 24th of February onwards. Tony, I wondered if you wanted to take us forward in this broad last question. Sure. I mean, I'd endorse um, what's been said so far. Perhaps the thing to add is that, just notwithstanding the importance of that critique over the coming months and years, it's actually going to be more difficult now. Russian historians, I suspect, are going to find that it's harder to publish exactly what they want to write necessarily uh, within Russia. Western historians, non-Russian historians, are going to have a lot of trouble working in Russian history for a period because, of course, one can't go to Russia, can't get access to the archives. How long is that situation going to pertain? It could be a, a very long time, actually. Um, so how is that that independent critique going to be sustained and developed over the coming years? I think that's a, a real practical problem. Yes, absolutely. Robert? Yes, if I might come in and pick up what Murray said, I, I, I find that very encouraging because Murray's absolutely right. Historians are important for challenging the stereotypes and the propaganda use of history, which works in democratic societies just as it works in authoritarian societies. And what struck me about blowing up of this whole crisis since the Crimea and before, when you know I was listening to Russian television when I was in Poland and got distinctly worried about the warmongering that was going on, you never had a trace of that on Russia today. Russia, Russian governments have been manipulating the free institutions of democratic consensual societies for centuries. They did it to Poland, Lithuania in the 18th century. They've been doing it to us. And while we have been going through in Britain quite properly, a fairly radical reappraisal of the role of the British Empire in the past, and historians have deconstructed the idea that it was this great civilizing force, Russia has not yet reached that point. It's an imperial, it's not a post-imperial culture at the moment, I think. And if 
historians of Russia in the West can take up that narrative and perhaps bring in the perspectives of historians of Poland, of Ukraine, of Belarus, the ones that are not under Lukashenko. I think it would be very positive because quite often the British critics of British Empire, so on, have actually bought the Russian imperial narrative because it's a stick to beat the British establishment with. And I think that's one thing that we have to think about seriously. And I'll end with a remark that I've made several times on this. They say that history is written by the winners. Well, it is, but it's also written by the losers. But the losers don't get translated into English. And that's been one of the problems, that we've had the translations of the great Russian classics. Well, now we have a translation in English of Khrushchevsky, a very good translation, a critical translation. And I hope that that will improve the situation, not least to return to what I said about historians of Poland, Lithuania, Belarus, and Ukraine. They've been getting together and conquering the demons of the past and the misinterpretations of the past and working towards a common history of that multinational, entangled history of that multinational region. So I'd be more optimistic because the one thing that Putin has created, I think, is a deep sense of the Ukrainian nation among Ukrainians whether they're Russian-speaking, ethnic Russians, Ukrainian-speaking, Uniates, Orthodox, he's created the absolute opposite effect to the one he intended. Yes, I think that's been very clear from what we've seen uh, since the 24th of February, perhaps the most striking example being the mayor of Odessa, who before the war was seen as rather pro-Russian and is now willing, as in his own words, to defend Odessa to the last person from aggression. And it also strikes me in concluding the cyclical nature of history and cultural analysis. I can remember as a schoolboy attending a lecture by Professor Alec Nove at the end of the 1980s, right at the end of the communist period, when he was very worried, gave a long talk about his concerns for the future USSR as it was then in the 1990s. And I was also reminded as Tony was speaking about archives, about one of my university tutors, Professor Christina Lauder, being followed everywhere by the KGB in Moscow and then Leningrad in the 1970s and being surreptitiously shown works of modern art by friendly museum professionals during her research on Russian constructivism. Colleagues, it's been a really rich and fascinating discussion. Thank you very much to everybody for participating, and we hope that everybody listening has enjoyed this. Thank you.